Thanks, Brian. <laughs> yeah. Good to see all of you here today, and uh, hello to all of you who are worshiping online with us. Um, it's, I think it's important, Brian mentioned this earlier, I think it's important to remember during this time when we're kind of in this hybrid world of we're worshiping here, some of us here in the building, physically present, and others at home, we're still connected in spirit um, and together in this experience, even though we're separated. Uh, for those of you who are new, and I've met a few new folks who are here today, and some of you probably are watching online and don't know me, my name is Stephen, I'm one of the pastors here. And today we're starting a new series, and it's um, the genesis of the, the idea of this series. I've been carrying it around for a while, and over the last few months, it feels like it's, it's the right time to talk about this. I'm going to explain uh, as we begin the series today why I think it's important and why I want to be exploring this topic. But before I do that, I want to take a few minutes just to explain some of the fundamental ideas that drive who we are and what we do as an, as an organization and as a community, because New Denver Church is both. It's an organization. I mean, we have employees and we have a staff. We have a staff handbook. Can you believe that? We have a staff handbook. I've actually read it. It's, it's riveting reading. Uh, I mean, we have a budget. We, we have the things that your companies, your businesses have. So we operate as an organization. But at the heart of what we do is that we are trying to create a community of people that's living in the world and, and behaving in the world, acting, doing things in the world in a particular way. And all that centered around our mission and our vision and our values. We have a clearly sort of a, a clearly clear sense, a clear idea of who it is that we want to be, both as individuals and, a, and as a group. And so I'm going to go through some of those foundational ideas today. So if you're, you've been around for a while, if you're a regular tender at New Denver, this will be old stuff to you. You've probably heard this before. But if you're new, this will give you an idea a little bit of who we are. And I'll explain a little bit later why I think it's, this is important for where we're going. So to begin with, the heart of our community is a mission. And that mission is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Emily said it this morning during the welcome. We say it every week. Um, this is core to who we are um, as, a, as an organization and as a community because Jesus is at the center of everything that we do. We want to introduce people to who Jesus is, and we want to help them learn what it means to follow him in their everyday life. Because Why is that? Because we believe that a relationship with Jesus is transformational. It changes you. But we don't just believe that it changes you as an individual. We think it actually has a ripple effect out into your life. That's why our vision, if we accomplish that mission, if we're living out that mission, then our vision is that there will be new lives, a new Denver, and a new world. That we believe that Jesus doesn't just transform individual lives. We think in the process of doing that, he changes marriages. He changes families. He changes workplaces. He changes neighborhoods and cities and ultimately even the world. This is how God transforms the world. And we are invited to be a part of that. So that's at the center of who we are. And then we've identified a key set of values. And values are just the things that we as a church, these aren't necessarily in the Bible. We've taken some of these ideas from the Bible, but they define what's most important to us and how do we decide, what do we do? How do we use resources? What, what kind of programs are we going to do? So all this information is on the website about us. It's all very public. You, you can read more about it later. I'm going to go through these values really quickly so we have a sense of what they are. Um, and then I'm going to explain why it's, why it's important to what we're talking about today. So our five values are these. Uh, and we include with each value a question, which helps us answer whether or not we're living that value out. So the first of our values is scripture. And the question that we ask ourselves is this, are we 
orienting our lives around the purposes of God as revealed in Scripture. We believe that the Bible is an inspired book that has been preserved and passed through history. And although it is an ancient book, it has timeless wisdom for our lives today. So we orient our our lives and our ideas about living around the principles revealed in Scripture. That's number one. The second thing is, second value is mission. Um, We don't exist for ourselves. This isn't a country club. It's not a social club. We exist to participate with God in his mission in the world. And the question we ask ourselves is, are we reaching out in mission to love the lost, the least, and the last? We are all called as followers of Jesus to be witnesses to how we have been transformed and to share the love that we've been shown by God with other people. And we do that both in word and in deed every day in everyday common kinds of ways. Third value is community. Community, we're going to talk a lot about this one today. Um, are we, the question is, are we cultivating authentic community with others? We don't want to just be a place where we come together or we sit and watch a service online and we're just consuming religious content. Really, community is at the center of what we're about because we believe following the way of Jesus requires other people to help us on that journey. Number four, Practices, the value of practices. We ask, are we pursuing practices that form us into a community of Jesus followers? Earlier this year, we did a whole series uh, called Common Practices, which was looking at habits, everyday things that we can do that can help build into us a, a regular pattern of following the way of Jesus in our lives. And the last one, the fifth value, this one's taken a hard hit during COVID for sure, presence. When, when one of your core values is physical presence, being present where God has placed you, whether that's in your workplace or in your neighborhood and being present to other people that are around you and suddenly you can't be physically present as much as you could, that's been a challenge. But we ask ourselves all the time, are we present to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives? And are we present to the people and the circumstances where he's placed us? So again, if you've been around New Denver for a while, you've probably heard some of these things. And even if you haven't, if you've never seen a list of our values, hopefully you would say, that sounds about right. I mean, that's consistent with what I see them doing in terms of how they allocate resources, what they encourage us as a community to be a part of. Hopefully that feels consistent for you. But if you're new, if you're visiting, just learning about us, these things are at the heart of who we are. They're the foundational ideas that we think are based on the teachings of Jesus that form our culture here at New Denver. Now I'm going to say more about that word culture and explain what I mean by that in just a few minutes. But here's why I think that this is important. Because for for us as a community, um, we're all being formed in different ways. So this community has a certain set of values, and those are reinforced, hopefully, in our relationships with one another. But the truth for all of us is that this isn't the only community that we're part of. No, there's a a lot of different forces and a lot of different uh, things that impact us all the time. Um, When we think about this idea of trying to live in the way of Jesus, to learn who he is and to follow his way in the world, we recognize that there's a lot of things, a lot of forces that move us towards that and a lot of things that move us away from that. I spend a lot of time thinking about those things. Um, Even before I became a pastor, but especially after I became a pastor, I think a lot about that for myself. What what are the things in my life that I need to embrace that are going to help me more and more live a life that's consistent with the teachings of Jesus? And what are the things that I need to resist? 
What are the things that are operative, the the influences that impact me that I need to push against that are going to move me in the opposite direction? Because really, there's not a neutral. There's no neutral place. We're always moving somewhere or another with all of our actions, our words. Everything about our life is either moving us more and more towards following the way of Jesus or moving us in the opposite direction, away from those things. And because I realize there are a variety of influences that that play on our lives, I think we need to be conscious and aware of what those are so we can be purposeful about what we engage, what 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 we embrace, and then what we resist. And a lot of those forces that impact us, they're internal forces. There are desires or, or values that come from within you. Everybody here has a story. Everybody here has, has experiences that, that have impacted you both for good and for bad. And you've reacted against those good and those bad things. And you've chosen to make decisions to live in a particular way. And some of those have moved you closer to following the ways of Jesus. And others have moved you in the opposite direction. And there are a lot of external forces and relational forces. There are family, and there are friends. The, the, your, your workplace, the, where you, what you do for a, a living, where you live has a big impact on you. And then from a, from a broad perspective, society and culture, the society and culture that we live in has a big impact on us as well. Now, I want to talk about these two words because they're important for where we're going over the next four weeks. I want to define what I mean by society and what I mean by culture. So society is just a way, a grouping of people that have an understanding about themselves in a particular way. So we could talk about American society. All of us who live here in America are a part of American society. And and there's a certain sense of identity that we have around being Americans. But more particularly, if you live in the city of Denver, you're also part of Denver society. And, And that has some uniqueness to it. There's some unique things about our life here that are different from people who live in different parts of America. So that's a society. But when you look at a society, what you see is it's not homogenous. It's not, everybody is not the same. It's very heterogeneous. And within that, there are lots of other groups. And they have different values, different customs, different ways of being in the world. And that's culture. That's culture. Within any society, there can be multiple cultures that are operative. What is culture? I love this definition from Andy Crouch. He wrote a book called Culture Making, which was really helpful for me. He says, culture is what we make of the world in both senses. So it's the tangible products that we make. It's the art. It's the music. It's the films that we create. It's even the physical things that we make every day. They are an expression of values, unspoken or unseen things, because culture is both seen and unseen. It's also the values, the unquestioned assumptions, and the allegiances that a group of people have. And again, these can be different. There can be different sets of assumptions and ways of seeing the world, different values that are operative within a particular society. That's certainly true in a pluralistic society like America. And so let me give you an example from my own life of how this works, how culture um, impacts um, life and how it, it plays itself out in very normal, everyday kinds of ways. So some of you know, uh, my wife's family owns a ranch in Wyoming. And we go to visit them pretty regularly. And when we do, I'm very aware that I am leaving one culture and entering another culture. Now, we're still in America. I mean, I'm not going to a foreign country. They still speak English there. I mean, it's still a part of the Western United States too. So there's some regional societal 
similarities that exist there. But I am always very aware that it is a different culture, and it expresses itself in some visible and some non-visible kinds of ways. Let me show you what I mean. Here's a picture from a recent trip that we took. I'm always aware of this because, to me, I just... I'm, I'm, I'm almost oblivious to the, the transition that takes place when we go there. But when we bring friends who are from Denver, the, the, the differences become immediately apparent, almost right away. So if you were to look at this picture and you look at this group of people, so this is from the ranch. We're doing some work with cows that day, helping out my brother-in-law who runs the ranch. If you were to look at this, pe- this picture, could you pick out the people who represent Denver city culture and people who represent Wyoming ranch culture? Could you pick, just take a look at them. Do you think you could pick them out? Let, let's start with maybe these two girls here on the right. One's wearing a, uh, a kind of a down, very fashionable looking jacket, some skinny jeans, Ugg boots. City or ranch? City, right, easy. How about the girl on the right? That's my niece, actually. That's Lily. Tip that one off. She's got a hat, faded. Um, you know, she's wearing lots of layers, work gloves, Wrangler pants, tucked into cowboy boots. Ranch culture, right? Okay, easy. Okay, well, let's try this again. So picture on the, look at the two boys on the far left. There's one over here who's wearing an American Eagle uh, flannel shirt, some jeans, and a pair of Nike Air Jordan tennis shoes. Standing next to him is a boy wearing a cowboy hat, Western shirt, Wranglers, cowboy boots, work, work gloves tucked in his back. City or ranch? Which one's city and which one's ranch? Pretty easy, right? Not so fast. Those are my two sons. They both are from Denver. But here's what's going on there. The one on the right, my older son, Ethan, has been living at the ranch this summer. So what we see going on here is cultural adaptation. See, the longer that you spend in a particular culture, the more it has an impact on you. And some of what we see expressed in culture here. Uh, our clothes. So those are the visible external kinds of things that you can look at and you can begin to pick out. And some of what you see are the values in terms of why people buy the clothes that they, they buy. If you look at my brother-in-law is the one, you can't really see him, but he's wearing that dirty old vest. My, my, um, my niece there is wearing an older vest and, and like they look dirty and worn out. That's because they don't really care what the clothes look like. They buy them for functionality. They buy them because the ranch is a harsh place. The dirt from the ranch stains everything. So they want to wear clothes that are durable and that hold up. They're not as concerned about what they look like. But that's not to say they're not total, they're not concerned at all about what it looks like because fashion is still a part of the culture. There is definitely a Western culture that cares about a particular way of looking. Fashion is part of the unspoken value of a particular culture. Maybe some of you who live here in Denver have been to the National Western Stock Show and you walked in and you thought, did I like walk into a Western movie? What's going on? What, these, this is not how people ordinarily dress in Denver. And you realize that you've stepped into another culture that has other values for fashion than what you see every single day. Over time, Culture has an impact like that. It can change your taste. My, my son has way more Western clothes after living at the ranch for a summer than he did before. And some of that is because he wants to fit in when he goes places. Some of it's functional, some of it's fashion. But the longer you t- spend time in a culture, the more you realize there are unquestioned assumptions and values that are tied to the set of assumptions that everybody who shares that culture just take for granted. 
After the, the, day, the same day that this picture was taken, later we were at dinner, all of us together, my friends from Denver and my family who live at the ranch, and we were all getting ready for dinner. We were preparing some, some food. And uh, one of my friends who's from here in Denver just made an offhanded joke about something crazy President Trump had said that week. And it was legitimately crazy. And the joke was kind of funny. I laughed. <clears throat> but one of my relatives said, he might be crazy, but he's done more for ranchers than the previous administration ever did. And it was one of those awkward moments where everybody got quiet for a second. And what you realize is my friend had stepped on an unquestioned assumption from another culture. Like there was a set of values that were operative for people who live on and, and, and work ranches that were different from his coming from a city. And then what was interesting is what happened next, which is something that you might not have expected. What happened next was my friend recognized what was going on, and instead of getting defensive or starting an argument, he just simply said, really, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about how this administration has helped ranchers. What are the things that I'm not seeing? And a really amazing thing happened. A very civil dialogue took place between two people from different cultures who had different perspectives and views of the world, but they were sharing and talking openly and honestly about their differences in a way that was really healthy and unexpected. Part of the reason, at least part of the reason, I think that conversation could take place because although they were from different cultures in terms of the place that they lived and the operative values um, and assumptions that they had about life, they had a culture that was in common that was actually deeper. They had been formed by a community that had shaped them to see the world in a different, different way. And that's because they're both Christians. Both of the people that were in this conversation were Christians. And so they had a deeper commitment to a way of being in the world that valued the opinions of other people and didn't simply see this as an opportunity for an argument. And although they came from different churches, they didn't attend the same church, they attended churches in different places, they had both been significantly formed into following the way of Jesus in substantial ways that has impacted this. And the fact that it's, it's surprising for us that a conversation like that could take place because it's so not the norm. When, when politics comes up in most of society, most of American society, what you see is the differences, particularly in online culture, which is its own separate world. What you see is that there's a lot of, a, a lot of hostility and, and animosity that goes back and forth, a lot of win-lose. And so what, what's remarkable is that, is that what we see in this interaction between two people who share a deeper commitment to a way of being in the world is that that forms us and shapes us in a way that's counter to the, to the culture that's going on around them. If that was a different set of people from Denver and a different set of people from ranch culture, that conversation could have gone very dif differently. But because they have a set, they've been shaped and formed by their experience and their faith, that went very differently. So in the few weeks that I have with this series, what I want to talk about is this idea is how are we shaped and formed here as a community and what are the forces that are going on around us that are impacting us maybe to move in the opposite direction. This is this conversation that took place between my relative and my friend is one example I think of the way that we're called to be countercultural in the world. And I want to talk about what that looks like, but before I do I want to start today 
with, I think, a cultural trend that's been going on for a while that has an impact on our capacity to be able to do that as a community. And it's a, it's a trend we've talked about before in the past. If you're a regular part of New Denver, we did a series called Generations where we talked about differences between generations. And we talked about one of the things that's changed over time and one of the things that's different for, for older generations compared to younger generations is that there's been a trend that's been happening in America for some time. And it was detailed by, first. the first time I found out about it was by uh, reading a book called Bowling Alone by Dr. Robert Putnam of Harvard University. And he wrote in two, the year 2000, about five years of research that he did that said that American social capital had been eroding. Our relationships with one another had been slowly eroding over time. We begin, we, we've slowly been putting less and less priority on our relationships with friends and family, but, but maybe even more so, we've been putting less commitment and less stock in social institutions in the community. Things like the Rotary Club, things like Kiwanis Club, and some of you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say these organizations because they're dying out because people aren't joining them. The name of the book, Bowling Alone, comes from this idea that there was a time where people went bowling together and they did leagues. And in that, what's what's relevant for us is that one of the social institutions that's been impacted by that is the church. In American society, over the last 20 to 30 years, people have have more and more been choosing to not be a regular part of a faith community. Whether they, that's changed their beliefs or not is, is a different, different thing, but people have been voting with their feet to not be regularly, regularly participating with a community of faith. And so in the years since Bowling Alone was written, there's been more research that's been done to really focus on religious communities, and it's shown that that's, that's a real trend. It's something that's it's actually accelerating. And this was all pre-pandemic. And so when we, when we think about that trend and we think about its impact on our life, it's important to also recognize that that's not a new phenomenon, that people's participation in religious institution in, in particular societies or cultures waxes and wanes. It, it goes up and it goes down over time. In fact, when you go back and when you read the New Testament, when you read the books of the New Testament, what you can see is the early leaders of the church were concerned about this from the beginning. They had an idea that this way of following Jesus, that this faith that would create a community was something that needed to be done together, that it wasn't a solo enterprise. And so what you see in the New Testament is a lot of formational information. You see the leaders of the early church talking about what is it that these gatherings are supposed to be? What is it that they're to do? How are they to be in the world? What is their behavior to be like? And they wouldn't have used words like society and culture. That probably wasn't something they understood. But they had a definite understanding that the world at large held different values and exerted a different kind of influence on followers of Jesus than the community of faith was to, was to, was to have. They, they had different kinds of influences. And the world, they, you often see the readers talk about, the, the writers of the New Testament talking about the world and its negative impact on followers of Jesus. And they were trying to create an alternate community that lived counterculturally in their time. And they encouraged people over and over and over again not to try to go it alone, to stay committed and connected to communities of faith. In particular, there's a verse we're going to take a look at from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a book that we're not even sure who wrote it, but it was circulated among the early church. And it was written, we know it was written during a time where it was very difficult to be a part of a church. There was persecution that had broken out. You have to remember, at this point, 
Christianity had broken off of Judaism and it was sort of seen as a sect or even a cult. So there was a lot of suspicion, particularly from political leaders of the day, that, that maybe this was a cult that was not helpful or you know, that there was a lot of rumors circulating about what these Christians were all about. And so because of intense pressure and persecution, it was difficult to be able to go to church. So the writer of Hebrews, whoever he or she was, um, writes encouraging them not to give up this practice. Look what, look what he says in chapter 10, verse 23. The writer says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So he begins with this admonition to hold on to hope, this hope that they had been given when they had received the good news about Jesus, that that God knew who they were, that God created them, and they had been recreated and reconciled in relationship with God through Jesus. And that through faith, they could live their life in a way that they could begin to experience the goodness of God in everyday ways in their life. That God saw the details and cared about the details of their life and loved them very, very deeply. That was the hope that they have, that we still have today. And then he points out the important role that a faith community plays in that process. He says, we can't give in to the temptation of not meeting together. We can't just go it alone. We can't just give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Some people were starting to drift away. In this context, we're starting to drift away from meeting regularly with a community of faith. And the author is saying, we can't do that. We have to hold on to this hope that we have together. We have to continue encouraging one another and exhorting each other, especially as we see the day approaching. What, it, what he's talking about there is they saw all of these negative things that were happening leading up to a final judgment that was anticipated, sort of the end of times. And they said, as things get worse, we need each other even more. We must resist the temptation to go it alone. And the same, I think, is true for us today. We have to resist the temptation to be pulled towards just going it alone. That's the first resistance I think we have to resist. Resist going it alone and embrace a commitment to community. That's the first thing I think we as individuals and as a community need to resist. And this is so important at this time because Hebrews was written to a group of people who were experiencing persecution, and it made it difficult to go to church. Now, we're not being persecuted in, intentionally as Christians right now, but in the middle of a global worldwide pandemic, it's harder than ever to stay connected to a community of faith. I mean, it's not... I'm, I mean, I'm looking out at a face, a bunch of faces covered with masks. This is not fun to sit in a room and to worry about, am I going to get infected with this virus? And if I do, how bad will I get sick? And I need to put hand sanitizer on and make sure I keep distance from people and I can't shake anybody's hand anymore. Or maybe I'm just going to stay home and watch this online, which is not nearly as good as coming and meeting with people in person. It's hard to be a part of a faith community today. I want to acknowledge that we have to hold unswervingly to the hope that we have. And we have to do that together. I was thinking about the paradigm of this just recently, how, how um, challenging it's become to, to stay connected as a community of faith. My family and I, we took a few days and we went up to the mountains 
couple weeks ago, and on the trip, we decided to, to go rafting. Anybody ever been rafting before? Okay, most people here have been rafting. You kind of know what the experience is like. If you've been before, there's a standard experience that happens before you go rafting. You know, you get circled up with your group, and the college kid who you're putting your life and your family's life in his hands or her hands for the day gives a safety speech all about what to expect for the day, what to do, how to hold your paddle, how to row, what to do when he says this or that. And there's one thing that gets stressed above any other, and that's what to do if you fall out of the boat. What, what happens if you fall out of the raft? Does anybody know or remember what's the one thing you want to do if you fall out of the raft? Any guesses? Anybody remember? You want to get back in the raft. That's thing number one. You don't want to be in the water, especially in Colorado. The water is snowmelt. It's like 50 degrees in the middle of the summer. It's freezing. So you could catch hypothermia really quickly. And on top of that, so yeah, you have a flotation device. You're floating, but underneath you are boulders and other obstacles that you can't see. And you don't want to go through really rapidly running water in that kind of situation all alone. You want to get back in the boat. And so we started rafting. And as I was thinking, I I thought about this parallel. So there's always, inevitably, there's a period of rafting, which is very calm. You know, you're on pretty flat water or there's very little rapids and things are great. It looks a little bit like this. So everybody's happy and everybody's smiling Oars up out of the water. Everybody's glad to be there. Look at that guy. He's like a stud, man. He's like ripped and, you know, he looks cool. He's got the different life vest on. He's got all the gear. I think this is a picture of churches before the coronavirus. I mean, and the guide, the guide is kind of like the staff, like us as pastors. It kind of even looks a little bit like Norton, doesn't it? Like all ripped up and big, cool, in charge, knows what's going on. But here's the thing. When you get to a different part of the river, things can go bad very quickly, especially if you're doing big rapids. And very quickly, it can go from this to this. And suddenly, the boat's churning over. People are out of the raft. I mean, look at the difference. I mean, look how much this guy aged between picture one and picture two. I mean, he's got like a big white beard. He's just barely holding on himself. I think maybe that's the elders or the volunteers of the church. Like, you know, just things are going bad. This is church's mid-coronavirus, I think. People are spilled out of the boat. They want to get, some of them want to get back in. Some of them are not sure what to do. They're just sort of floating down the stream. And the boat, they're not even sure they want to get back in the boat because the boat is not the same as it was before. It's not flat. It's sort of tipped up. And I today, I want to say, this is the situation that we find ourselves in. This is the church, not just us here, at New, not personally in New Denver, but this is the church in America and around the world today. It would be really easy to just let go and drift downstream. It's really hard to, to turn over on your stomach and swim against the currents, to fight the rapids and to get back to the boat. And even if you do, you, sometimes we need some help. You need somebody to pull you back into the boat. And today, I just want to be the person who's calling and encouraging and challenging all of you. Those of you who are here, those of you who are online, keep resisting the temptation to drift away. Keep resisting the temptation to just do this alone. Because now, in this time, more than ever, there are forces in the water. There are forces in the culture around us that are going to take us in a direction that we don't want to go. 
And over the next three weeks, I'm going to talk about what some of those things are. What are some of the forces that are out there in culture, the cultures that some of us are part of that are having an influence on us? And I just want to say, we need to get everybody back in the boat. We need to hold on to one another. We need to stay connected, to not give up meeting together and connecting to, to one another as a part of this faith community, as has been our tradition. Just because it's difficult does not mean that we don't need to keep contending to do that. So how do we do that? I want to suggest three ways, and then we're going to wrap up. First, prioritize connecting on Sundays. I'm not saying you have to come in person. I understand there's a lot of you watching at home that have, that have concerns about your health, you're in high-risk category, or you love somebody who is, and you want to take precautions and stay home, that's fine. But keep participating. It's important that you're here. We want to keep experiencing these Sunday mornings together. We're, we're doing these services online and in person to try to make it as accessible as we possibly can because we recognize in this time it's gotten difficult. And if you know someone who's been away or you haven't seen Reach out to them. Invite them to come back. That's the thing number two. Help others stay connected by reaching out to them. They talk about this in rafting, that when somebody gets back to the boat, it's not just an easy thing to get up out of the water to get back into the boat. Sometimes we have to reach down and pull people up and help them back in. Sometimes people just need a call or a text message or somebody to check in on them. We as a staff have been trying to do that, reach out to the people that we haven't seen or heard from in a while. But again, we're just a small number of people. If, if we could just all think about who have I not seen or connected with, how can I stay connected to others in this community in order to stay together, I think we'll all be more effective together. And then the last thing is really simple. A great way to get connected is to get in a D group, a discipleship group. If you're new, we do small groups that meet online or in homes. We've been doing online groups since, since COVID started. Some of them are starting to meet outside, socially distanced in safe ways. But it's a great way to break a larger community down into smaller groups so that you can get to know people, so that you can learn to grow in your faith together and learn what it looks like um, to follow the way of Jesus, to be encouraged, to be challenged by people who actually know you at a deeper level than simply meeting on a Sunday morning or saying hello to someone. In the next week or 10 days, we're going to put out our list of D groups for the fall. And at the end of August or beginning of September, those groups are going to get started. They're kind of a rolling window. And we're going to have a lot of different kinds of groups that we're going to offer you. Get connected now more than ever as we're about to go into the fall where there's a good possibility we may have to close down in-person services again. D groups will be vitally important for us to stay connected to one another. And then come back next week. <clears throat> next week, we're going to start talking about some of the other forces that are in the water and how we can steer the raft around them, how we can keep moving in the direction that we want to go as a community. So as we close today, let's pray that God would give us courage and direction uh, and, and strength to keep swimming in the currents that we face today. Let's pray. <clears throat> Almighty God, we, um, we just recognize that you created us for relationship with other people. You created us as human beings um, with a need for connection to others. <clears throat> and that you've recreated us um, as we've come to faith in Jesus. You've recreated us into the church, the body of Christ. The tangible presence of Jesus here in this world is through us, through the church. And we acknowledge that right now, um, given the, the challenges that our world is facing, um, it's difficult to remain connected to other people. It's difficult um, to stay connected on Sundays and worshiping together. It's, it's difficult to, 
to remember to make time or to reach out to initiate conversation or connection with other people when we don't have events or other things that, that the church is doing as much to help um, keep us connected because of COVID. So God, I just pray that you would, by your spirit, give us, um, just give us insight in how we can stay connected to others and give us courage, God, to keep fighting the resistance that, that maybe is within us and, and around us to just let go and to give up um, being a part of this faith community. Help, help us um, stay connected to one another that we might encourage one another, challenge one another to become the individuals, the people, the community that you want us to be in this world, that we would continue to be your agents of love and grace in a world that's hurting and that needs it. And we pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.